Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Executive Pastor Lee Cadden continues in our series, So That You May Know. My name is Lee. I also serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, it's a privilege and a joy to worship with you today. It's something that we don't take lightly. Um, and so we are glad to be able to be here together. Or if you're worshiping with us online, we're glad to have you joining us in that way. We are in a series titled, So That You May Know. Uh, not ponder, wonder, or hope, but so that you may know. Luke writes his gospel in such a way that it is meant to bring assurance, it is meant to bring confidence, it is meant to bring a stark reminder and contrast against the kingdom of this world when we read about the kingdom of heaven coming in and through the person, life, death, and eventual resurrection of Jesus, and then all that came after that as the church expanded all over the Roman Empire. Uh, If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10 today. And just uh, to kind of set up the context for where we've been, Jesus has now left Galilee, and he is on his final uh, approach, if you will, to Jerusalem. He knows what lie ahead. Uh, and so the dividing lines are becoming all the more clear. They're becoming all the more stark in contrast. And Jesus, uh, in conversations with his disciples and then in conversations with the crowd, so to speak, if you could call it a conversation, and then in conversations with the Pharisees, we continue to see the dividing lines clearly being drawn between those who are with Jesus, or as Matt referenced last week and talked about it, that those are the people whose eyes have been opened to the goodness, kindness, grace, mercy, and loving reign of Jesus Christ. There are those who are with Jesus whose eyes have been opened, and then there are those who are against Jesus whose eyes are closed. While Jesus' bold attack on the religiosity of the Pharisees appears to be the theme, the truth is, and this is where we landed last week, is that Jesus is drawing the line so that it is perfectly clear what is necessary to have life in his name, and that is simply repent, believe, come home, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That over and over and over again is the common theme as Jesus is contrasting his rule, reign, and laying down of his life eventually with the overlording of the Pharisees on all of the people that were listening to and following them or having been bound by them. And there's a story of this incredible healing that takes place in Luke chapter 13. And so we're going to reread that from last week and kind of launch into uh, where we're going in chapters 13 and 14 this week. So I'm starting in Luke chapter 13. Uh, In verse 10, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. 
Jesus is the author of life, and he gives it freely to those who call on him, who come to him. And this woman, held captive by her infirmity, by a spirit for 18 long years that had her completely bent over and crooked, is now straight and free to live in Christ. And the beauty of this story is that this is a perfectly clear picture of what happens when the kingdom hits crookedness. When the kingdom comes into the presence of that which is broken and lost, it sets free. It releases from bondage. Luke in chapter 13 is going to make a shift for the next several chapters starting here at the end of this passage or the end of this text where he has been talking about the kingdom and then evidencing it with all of these miracles. For the next several chapters, he's just going to be talking about the power of the word and what happens when those who hear the word receive the word and repent because of the power of the word of God. Jesus Uh, if we are to call him as such, is the first, greatest, best, most thorough evangelist that ever lived. His words uh, held an incredible amount of power, and everywhere he went, he shared the good news of the kingdom, both in what he did and what he said. And so this morning, there's an incredibly high call of evangelism for all who would believe and follow after Jesus in chapters 13 and 14. And at the end of chapter 14, Jesus is going to make it perfectly clear that if you're going to live this life and preach this gospel with your life and with your words, then the cost will be great. Evangelism at its core is a word that depending on where you're from and what your your background is, that's either a word that's taboo or this word, I don't, that's, that's not me. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not one that goes and does those things. Or we think of people in particular when in reality, evangelism is simply telling the story of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and second coming with the goal of persuading people to repent of their sin, following Jesus as Lord and rely on him to save them from their condemnation. That's from a commentary. Uh, to put it simply, Uh, An evangelist is a person who longs to see people come to hear, trust, and obey Jesus. And so they will tell whomever, wherever, of the good news of what has set them free. Jesus, though, is our absolute best model and guide for how we are to live our life, but also how we are to speak of his life coming in and through us to the world around us. And Luke paints a really clear picture of here that it mattered to Jesus, It mattered that people rightly thought about or rightly understood what the kingdom of God was and was not. And the reality for us today is it still matters to Jesus, that we would understand rightly about the kingdom, but that we would also proclaim rightly about the kingdom of what it is and what it is not. And he urgently and boldly and compassionately pleads with people to see the kingdom and repent of their ways to come home is as good a way as any to describe what Jesus is urgently pleading with the people for. And at the end of his time on earth, after his resurrection, he makes it clear that our responsibility as disciples is to go and do likewise. That we can't just leave the proclaiming of the gospel up to people that might get paid to do that or travel around and it involves a tent or it involves whatever it may be the case you know, when we think about evangelism. For Jesus, the evangelist is the same as the someone who is making disciples, to go and make disciples, teaching them to hear, trust, and obey all that has been commanded of you. That's the life of those of us who follow after Jesus. And if it matters to Jesus, it should matter to us.
So let us this morning learn from him. Let us receive from him this morning. In this woman's story, the kingdom of God coming into her brokenness, compassionately reaching out and placing his hand on her, sets her free from all of her hurt, all of her pain, all of her captivity. And in all of our lives and all of the lives of the people around us, there are people who will see, repent, and believe in those who won't. There are those that will come to know this loving, longing Jesus in the way that we see him here in the Gospels. And when the kingdom of God shows up, it always frees. It always redeems. It always brings about healing. And Jesus, in this story, never misses the opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He never misses the opportunity to contrast the overburdened kind of message that they had preached and proclaimed and kind of lived by for the people of Israel. And if it was okay for them to take their ox or their donkey out to get water, then certainly, absolutely, certainly shouldn't it have been okay, if not even amazing in their eyes, that Jesus would heal a woman on the Sabbath, therefore, thereby condemning their hypocrisy in that moment, their misunderstanding of what the Sabbath is really all about. Without letting up at all, Jesus begins to continue proclaiming, or he goes on to continue proclaiming the kingdom in another way, which is really the whole point of what he's doing on the road between Galilee and Jerusalem. He's like, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is not. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is not. This is what it looks like to walk in freedom. This is what it looks like to walk in bondage. Repent. Believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. In verse 18, he tells two very short parables that have an enormous amount of consequences when we think about the kingdom. In verse 18, Jesus says, what's the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and birds of the air perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Through these parables, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God has both an outward and upward component and an inward and complete component. That there are things that happen in our life that the world can see in an increasing measure as we are walking with him over the decades or years or however long we get in this life. But that there is also something that happens within us as we realize the kingdom growing in us and through us. And it happens in a complete way. There's no partiality given to any of us once we are saved by Jesus that we can hold on to our own things with, right? Like Jesus is after complete lordship. He's after complete authority. He's after complete rule and reign over all of our life. Jesus boldly, clearly communicates that this is what the kingdom does. It heals, it transforms, it sets free, it grows, it radically changes, it always wins. This is what the kingdom of God does does all for the glory of God. Jesus then, as he so famously often does, moves right from there on down the road. In verse 22, it says, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. 
There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Somebody's finally honest in the crowd. Jesus, this is hard. Like the things that you're saying, if you're here this morning going, this is hard, you're right. For the last several weeks, we've been going through some of these incredibly difficult teachings and this person finally asks what all of us either have or will ask at some point in our life. Jesus, is anybody gonna be saved? I mean, is it, is it, just, a, is it just a few that are going to be saved? And Jesus responds by saying, make every effort, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. The door is narrow because the way is singular. There is a means by which we go into heaven and we don't go in together. We go one at a time. The means by which we enter the kingdom of God is one man and therefore it is narrow. It is the only way to salvation. And so when the man asks the question, are, are there many, are there few that are going to be saved? Jesus answers the heart of the question as the person asks that. And so I thought for us this morning, what, is, what do we mean when we say saved? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have salvation be true of our life? So I thought of it this way, that, re, that salvation is to be rescued by Jesus and kept by Jesus that our salvation has a beginning point and over the course of our life, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says, as we are made more and more and more like Jesus. And so to believe that we are saved by him, it's not primarily a decision, but it is a rescue. It is a behind enemy lines, covert op that had no other way of coming true other than Jesus doing what he did. It is by that means that you are saved. And so when Jesus says, strive, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, what he is saying is that when you see the kingdom, when you see me, don't miss it. When you see the way that is into the kingdom of God, make every effort possible to live your life, all of your life to him who is the way. And when we are saved by God, when we realize that, when we recognize our brokenness and we come to repentance, Jesus is pleading with us to say, you now know the secret. You now know the secret to the kingdom of heaven, that it is only one way into it. That it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. It doesn't matter what your resume says. All that matters is do you know the narrow way and have you walked through it? Jesus expands on this urgency in an incredible way by not answering the person's question directly about the number of people will be saved. And he says three things, strive to enter, make every effort to enter, hurry because the time is limited. There is no second chance. There isn't some miraculous moment, at least that we know of or see in scripture. So therefore we assume there is not. There is nothing after this life that we get some second miraculous chance to believe in Jesus. So hurry because your time is limited. Your days are numbered. And then ultimately, if you strive to enter, that you hurry because the time is limited. Do you in fact know him personally, not just know about him? Because we could make the argument that all of these Pharisees know far more about God than most of us ever will. This is their entire life. They had tons of information 
about God, but Jesus makes it plain that there will be people who know about God that he just flat out doesn't know. That is both terrifying and comforting. That is both encouraging and exhausting when you think about it. And Luke is painting the picture perfectly clear that we might see that it's important and it is also personal. It's not some arbitrary, abstract answer from Jesus. He says, no, you strive to enter into the kingdom. You hurry because you don't know if you're gonna wake up tomorrow. You be sure that you know Christ because he is the only way. It's not some plural you that Jesus is talking about. He is saying this to individuals who would listen. But sadly, many people spend their life meandering through it as if they believe that hell wasn't a reality. They spend their life meandering through life, not really knowing if it's real, and if it is, it's somewhere far off down the road. No, Jesus makes it clear that to end your life without him is to not be with him, and it is a very real and terrifying thing. And so Jesus is pleading with them, giving everything he possibly can in every single moment with every single conversation, bringing it back to the kingdom of God. Because as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But for those who are being saved, it is the most amazing, graceful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, since we know what it was like to be apart from him, and now what it is like to be saved by him, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. The we is all of us. It's not some of us. It's not those with that gifting or that gifting or that gifting. No, the people in your life are likely only going to hear the gospel from you with from you. I don't say that to condemn or bring shame. I just say that that Jesus would have us believe with all urgency that we have been placed in the lives of people for a particular reason. And he can save and will save whom he will save. But it is our responsibility to urgently plead with people the way that Jesus urgently pleads with people in his last days as he's walking to Jerusalem. This is a very clear and high challenge that is personal, but is incredibly compassionate and urgent from Jesus. Remember, that's the heart of what's going on here. He's not trying to heap coals on people's heads. He's saying, no, 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 this matters, and it matters for eternity. It matters that you get this right. For both Paul and Jesus, knowing God led to a passionate, urgent pleading with their lives so that others would be reconciled to God, that they would hear the good news, that they would learn to trust him for salvation, that they would obey him in every area of their life. That was what it meant to share and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And Jesus isn't missing a single opportunity to continue proclaiming this truth. In verse 31, Jesus goes on. It says, at the time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And then I like to believe Jesus responded this way. You go tell that fox that I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow. And on the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, full of boldness with his face set on Jerusalem, knowing what was to come and that in, that in a week or several weeks time that he would finally see his end 
that ultimately he knew that what, the pain, what pain was coming, but he was not concerned with Herod's threats. Of all the things that he could have been concerned with at that point, he was most concerned with continuing to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, that people would repent and know him, the only one true way, the narrow door. He was more concerned with their salvation and their understanding of who he was than he was with any death threat from an enemy. And yet Jesus, also full of brokenness, while he is bold in the face of of his attackers, continues to mourn for Israel's unwilling, unrepentant hearts to believe that the kingdom of God had come, even if it was in a way that they did not expect it to. And when I think of this, I think, would we be a church? Would we be a people? Would we be in our places of work, in our places of school, in our homes? Would we be a people who are bold in the face of the world with our proclamation of who God is and whose we are and who he is, would we be bold in that sense and yet at the same time be broken because of the sin that surrounds us? Would we be so broken over our own sin or over the sins of those around us that we would weep as Jesus wept for Jerusalem in the face of unrepentance? Would that be a marker in our lives that we were that bold and yet that broken for people to come to know what we know? to believe in whom we believe in, to trust him who we trust with all of our lives. That's what Jesus is proclaiming here over and over and over again. In chapter 14, he goes on and Luke says this, one Sabbath, I think Luke's making a point about the Sabbath, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your relatives, or rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Maybe he didn't think he should have been excused. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house 
will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. The message is abundantly clear here if you're Jesus and the Pharisees. The chosen people of God were the first to be invited in, but in their pride and arrogance, their sense of nationalism, their heritage, they valued their identity as a people more than they valued the God who made them a people, more than the one who had saved them from Egypt, more than the one who had called them out from one family, more than the one who had time after time after time proven himself faithful. This people had now rejected the very one who was coming to finally save them. Throughout this entire passage this morning, and really starting really with last week, moving into the next several chapters after even after this week, Jesus is pleading with the Israelites, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not as big and as grandiose as you thought it might be, and yet it's more spectacular and bigger than you ever imagined it could be. It's so much more than you have your eyes set on. Knowing about the Father is not enough, but coming into the banquet, eating with me, having your seat at the table filled with you, that is what I'm after. That's what it's all about. But the way is narrow, it's singular, it's me. I'm it. Christianity is the most exclusive religion on the planet, if you want to call it that. And it's exclusive because of the means by which we enter in, while it's inclusive, as Jesus says, of all kinds of people who come from the north and the south and the east and the west. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jerusalem, Israel, was missing it. They couldn't see what they had so longed for because of their own sense of entitlement. Jesus says, don't miss this, Israel. Don't miss this, church. Don't miss this. Strive to enter. Make every effort. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus challenges a whole lot of different people, and I want to touch on all of them briefly as we move towards the end of our message this morning. In verses 2 through 6 of 14, he challenges the religious again, and he calls out their hypocrisy again. In verses 7 through 11, he challenges the proud. He says, don't exalt yourself. Don't take the highest place or you will be humbled because God promises to give grace to the humble and he humbles the proud. In verses 12 through 14, he challenges those who hope in their wealth and their reputations that their wealth has therefore provided them uh, by those who throw the biggest, most lavish parties. For Jesus, their reputation was on the line and he challenges the status quo in a way that says, don't put your hope or trust in wealth and what will be repaid to you, but put your hope and trust in the one who will bring about the resurrection of the righteous and you will receive your reward on that day. Finally, in verses 15 through 24, Jesus challenges those who presume, those who think that just because they are an Israelite that they will be given access into the kingdom of heaven. And so it didn't matter how they live. They presumed upon the grace and kindness of the Father. And Jesus challenges their presumption by saying, without repentance and striving and walking through the narrow door, following hard after the one way that is the Son of God, without repenting and believing in his name, there is no forgiveness of sins and there will be no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, at a dinner party, makes no bones about the fact of how it is that you enter into relationship with the Father. And he reminds us again and again that it is the broken who enter the kingdom of heaven, not the self-righteous. 
It is those who believe that they are in need of a doctor who find healing from the great physician, not those who think they are perfectly fine and fully healthy. Jesus in Matthew chapter six says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. What it means to be poor in spirit is to recognize that you deserve none of it that you had no means by in and of yourself to enter into the kingdom, that, you, that a way had to be made, that in your depravity and in your sinfulness, you were in need of a rescue, you were in need of a savior, you were dead, and now you're alive. It's not just a, a little bit better, or you're a little bit better than that person, and now you're a little bit better than everybody else. No, you were completely dead, and now you are completely alive in Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For Jesus, nothing was off limits for the people of God to hear the word of God, that they might come to repentance. And so he is in just full-on charge mode. Like if there's an offensive mode for Jesus, he's he's in offense mode, right? Like he is going hard after the message of the kingdom of God coming in this way. And he is pleading with bold urgency for people to come to repentance and believe. In chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus then turns his attention off the Pharisees for just a few moments uh, and, he, and he puts the focus back on the crowd that has been following him. Verse 25 says, large crowds were, fought, were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation with a while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Even with all the strong rebuke of the establishment, the continual beratement of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the crowds are gathering. People are following Jesus. They're eager to hear more. They want to hear more because that's what the kingdom does. It draws in those who are being saved and it continues to be an increasing measure, foolishness to those who can't see it, whose eyes have not been opened. But Jesus wants everyone on the road that day to fully understand that if you are going to walk through the narrow door and he pleads with them to do so, that there is an incredibly high cost to be paid with your life. And that cost, according to Jesus, is all of your life. Jesus demands absolute and utter allegiance. And he uses the word hate to contrast allegiance to him with everything else in this world. Throughout his entire life, Jesus upholds all of the commandments, which means, which means there was never a day that he ceased to honor his father or his mother. He never hated his mother. That's evidenced with him and John as he's on the cross saying, mother, here is your son. Like all of Jesus fully embodied all of the commandments. And yet in this moment, he uses the language of hate to draw the stark contrast between complete and total allegiance to him and anything and everything else 
in your life. For them in that day, family was everything. It was your lifeblood. It was literally how you made every decision. How would this impact the family? Inheritance and family lines. And think about how many stories there are in scripture that have to do with the family. It mattered tremendously to God and it mattered to Jesus. But ultimately, Jesus is saying that your love, loyalty, and commitment to him must be so fierce that your other relationships would look like hatred in comparison. Are you willing to give up everything in your life for the sake of knowing him who has made a way for you? That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to, and it's what Jesus continues to call his disciples to. He uses another image and says, if you will take up your cross and carry it, then you can follow me. And if you're not willing to take up your cross, then you're not fit to be my disciple. For them, this was not a metaphor. Jesus's crucifixion wasn't the first Roman crucifixion that they had seen. And so the image was very clear, very real, easy to understand. If you follow me, it means you will die. You will give your life for the sake of of the kingdom. And Jesus is telling them, you will take up your cross and follow me, or you're in fact not following me. For us today in America, while it is true that people still do give their life for the sake of following Jesus, for most of us, if we spend the rest of our days here in America, we will likely face crosses that look very different than the crosses that the first century Christians faced. Your cross could look like family persecution of not understanding why you choose to give your life for something that you feel called to. It could look like remaining pure while single, even though everyone else is telling you it's not worth it and it's really not that big of a deal anyway, and everybody does it. It could look like not taking the easy way out, even though no one else is looking. Taking up your cross in order to follow Jesus could look like any number of things, but the question is, is does Jesus have total allegiance from you? Is all of your life given over to him? Are you willing to crucify your own agendas, your own plans, your own dreams, your own possessions? Are you willing to say not just a little bit of my paycheck, but all of it is yours? Or what would you have me do with it? All of your vocation, all of your future, all of your today, all of your past. Are you willing to lay all of it at his feet? And if so, then Jesus says, you can come and follow me. But it is by grace that we are saved And it is by grace that we walk in this kind of way. And so when Jesus says count the cost, it's not this sense of internal mustering up on our own by which we do it, but it's looking at him, forgetting everything else, forsaking everything else around us, saying you and just you for the rest of my life, I don't care where and I don't know how, but you do and I trust you. That is what Jesus is calling his disciples to both then and now. Are we willing to give everything? And he means everything. Pick a Greek or Hebrew word that translates into everything. Guess what it means? Everything. Are you willing to give everything for the sake of holding only Christ? That's what it means to walk through the narrow door. If you're here this morning or if you're watching on your line, online and you're like, mm, nope, I don't know about all that right now. This seems like a lot. This seems like I don't think I can take that step. I want you to remember this this morning, that Jesus weeps over the lost, that he is the most deeply committed evangelist that ever walked the face of the earth because he knew what it was like to be in the presence of God and his deep 
longing was that me and you and everyone who would come to faith and repentance would know what it is like to be in the presence of the Father. And he lovingly, boldly, directly, personally, in high degrees of challenge, like if there's a scale of one to 10, he's challenging at 100, that he desperately longs for the house of God to be full with the people of God. And he over and over again urges, pleads with people. And he still does. But if you think about it like this, I want you to think, or if you you think about it, I want you to think about it like this as we end this morning, that in all of this, Jesus isn't just desiring a crowd. He's not trying to pull together the biggest following. He's, He's not even doing things that would lead to the biggest following, but he's not at all interested in just the crowd. He's interested in and longing for and urgently pleading with individual people. He desperately longs for you, just you, to walk through with him for the sake of knowing his father. In John chapter one, John puts it this way in referencing Jesus is coming to earth. John chapter one, verse 10, we read this together as our call to worship. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, you have been given the right, the privilege to become children of God, or there is a doorway where that is the reality on the other side. Would you walk with him? Would you walk through it? Would you hear him urging you, pleading with you, longing for you to come and be reconciled to God as he says, just come home, son. Come home, daughter. And if that is true of you as son or daughter, would you live your life like that was the most urgent message as you could ever proclaim with all of your life for as many days as you get breath? That Jesus is the way, the narrow gate, the narrow door. Would you walk with him? Would you believe in him? And would you then urgently live your life like that were the most important message you had to give? Because it is. Jesus ends in a very similar fashion to what we talked about last week, he ends chapter 14 by saying, or Luke records this at the end of chapter 14. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Him who has eyes to see, let him see. Him who has ears to hear, let him hear this good news of the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.